Welcome to Let It Low, Pit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had become a cult figure, notorious RPG, and a role model for young women long before she passed away last September. A new documentary called Ruth Justice Ginsburg, in her own words, traces her path from the early days of her career when no law firm would hire her despite graduating first in her class to becoming one of the most influential women in America and perhaps the world. The film premieres today in virtual cinemas and on TV on demand on March 9th. I'm very pleased to welcome its Academy Award-winning director, Frida Lee Mock, to our show now, along with two women whose lives were changed by Justice Ginsburg, Lily Ledbetter and Jennifer Carol Foy. Hello. Welcome to our show. Hello, Leonard. This is Frida. Thank you. <laughs> now, Frida, you've been... You've been nominated, Frida, for an Academy Award five times, one for your film Maya Lin, A Strong Vision, which was about an architect and a sculptor. What led you to want to make a film about Ruth Ginsburg? I had the opportunity because I was asked to do a film by two wonderful executive producers, Regina Scully um, and uh, Darren Dreyfus and uh, Deborah Dopkin, Sandra Lee. And uh, it was a great opportunity to learn much more than I knew um, as a, a citizen. I knew she was an, is, was an eminent, eminent, highly respected uh, justice and professor, but I knew very little beyond that. So it was an had you, begun, had you yes. begun working on it before she died last September? Uh, uh, yes. We had started production in uh, right after the presidential inauguration, 217. And we finished mm. it. Um, the story was pretty much finished um, by the mid to nineteen, um, and it had basically finished before ultimately completed film. You know, technically, uh, before she passed away in September, so it was done uh, um, very much for the sense that she was with us, and it, it, the tone, as you can see, is very much present tense, and therefore. Mm. Um, because of our passing and the, the film is going out um, since we put a, a, a moment uh, in memoriam at the very end to acknowledge that. Lily, so, you have the odd distinction of having a law named after you, the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which was the first bill signed into law by President Obama when he took office in 2009. What role did Justice Ginsburg play in that story? Her dissent, when she read the dissent, when the ruling came out the day that the verdict came out about the Ledbetter v. Goodyear case, it was in May of 07, and she read her dissent loud and clear from the bench. Uh, a reporter called me, and she explained to me, she said, if I could have only been there and heard her words. But what Justice Ginsburg did in that dissent she said these folks do not know what it's like in the real world. She was referring to those five justices who were all men. They had ruled against my case, which had gone all the way up to the Supreme Court and had been awarded down below and found in my favor. And actually, Justice Alito, when he read the opinion, he agreed that I had been discriminated against. 
his statement was, I waited too long. But actually, actually, in years past, that law had always been interpreted based on paycheck accrual. If I was still getting a check, I had 180 days. But Justice Ginsburg read that dissent, and she said that they just don't understand or they don't care. And she challenged Congress. She said, it is up to you. She said, the ball is in your court. It is up to you to change this grave injustice and change it back for all of the citizens. And so within just a short time, Congress had started working on it, uh, and then the chairman of the committee called and asked if they could name it after me, and I was thrilled. And it was it was a wonderful bill. It only took 18 months to get it passed. But it was supported by Republicans and Democrats because what Justice Ginsburg talked about in her dissent and reference to my case, it's about every family across this nation getting equal pay and, for equal work. And maybe we could talk a bit more about the details of the case later, later on. Jennifer, okay. you've been a public defender and a delegate in Virginia's House of Delegates, which is part of the state legislature. And aren't you currently running as a Democratic candidate for governor of Virginia? Are you there, Jennifer? Okay, well, we will get back to... We lost uh, that call, but we'll get back to her. Um, okay, well, most of my following questions for a while will be directed at Frida, but Lily and Jennifer, if you can hear me, if there's something you wanna add, please feel free to jump in. Frida, the, the subtitle of your film is Justice Ginsburg in Her Own Words. Were you, were you able to interview her in person for the film? Well, before I say that, could I add one last, one uh, one idea to what uh, Lily Ledbetter said about the dissent that Justice Ginsburg felt would reach the public? She said the dissent from the bench with the with the idea that she firmly believed that the three branches of government would work together, and mm. um, that uh, that gave her great hope that there would be some. Um, some resolution for a Lily Ledbetter. And, and she was right that uh, there was, as Lily said, bipartisan support in the Congress and then um, the signature by uh, President Obama. So you had the three branches really, you know, doing what I think the American public wants the three branches to do. And, and that's a great example of what uh, we could do now going forward. Yeah. So in terms so of your question about the, uh, the, the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, sometimes dissents uh, have as much of an impact on history as the, the, uh, the, the first decision. Uh, so you were jumping in with something else? The, the, the film includes lots, lots of film clips of interviews, speeches, and especially Q&As with school children. How aware was she of her position as a role model for young women? Uh, she does come across as incredibly charming. Uh, yeah. Well, I... I felt I feel that she's very aware of her, her, the, the impact of the of being uh, in a position where she helping makes a difference, and particularly I think when I hear and see her speaking in uh, her 80s uh, when she became this icon, 
uh, and met the the, pop, the, the, the public, you know, embrace. Um, I, I really thought she was strategic that she used that platform um, to say certain certain things. And two ideas I find that as a national leader, she only was the only one that would uh, address these two issues. One was unconscious bias, which she notices in the film when she's asked by uh, Justice Liu, what remains from the work from the 70s? And as we know from the 70s, you know, the hundreds of statutes discriminating on the basis of sex had been overturned. But she felt the last front, last front here was the issue of unconscious bias. In this case, it was um, issues of sex, but we know that applies to race and other issues. And she seemed to see herself as living proof that perseverance in the face of discrimination can break down barriers. Uh, we want to, uh, before we go on, I want to uh, welcome uh, Jennifer Carol Foy to our show. Um, sorry we had a bit of a technical problem there. Now, Jennifer, you've been a public defender and a delegate in Virginia's House of Delegates, which is part of the state legislature. Aren't you currently running as a Democratic for governor of Virginia? Yeah, that is right. So thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here um, with all of you. Um, and yes, because of the groundwork laid by former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she kicked open the door for me to be able to attend Virginia Military Institute, one of the top military colleges in this country, um, become one of the first women to graduate, which created the framework that led to my life being a public defender, a foster mom, a legislator, the woman who made Virginia the 38th state to uh, enshrine women's equality into the Constitution with the Equal Rights mm -hmm. Amendment, along with the activists, and now running for governor to be the first black woman governor in the history of our country. And uh, we'll get into more details of the case later on. But uh, I, I've already told Lily Ledbetter, who's also with us, uh, that uh, most of my questions for a while will be addressed to Frida, but if there's something you want to add at any time, just feel free to jump in, okay? Will do. Now, okay. let's get back to Ruth, Frida. Uh, she went yeah. to Cornell and married Martin Ginsburg after she graduated. They had a daughter. And then she entered Harvard Law, where she was asked by the dean, why are you here taking the place of a man? How did she answer that? Well, you know, he assembled the, was it the 1920-plus women out of a class of 500 at his uh, home and asked that question. And uh, she felt finally that she could speak to her husband. I believe that's what she, she her husband was going to law school at Harvard at the same time, a class ahead of her. And it was really to be able to support, I think, her husband. Um, it, it wasn't... Um, quite the empowering statement, I think we hear from women today. Um, but it was a very, you know, appropriate, um, polite uh, comment. So she transferred to Columbia Law School. Did she do it as in response to that? And there she was tied for first in her class, but she, oh, she couldn't find a job, right? Yeah. Well, she well first she went the to the Well, she went to Harvard first. Yeah, both of them are at Harvard. He was one year ahead, and so he graduated. Yeah. And to keep the family together, and he received. And then she job. went to Columbia. A job. She, she, he had a job in Manhattan, and so she transferred. 
with the hope that actually she asked the the dean if she could receive her uh, law degree from Harvard, having spent two years there and having made law review in her first year while raising a child, a, a child and taking care of a family uh, and, and, and doing her work. Um, and she uh, was denied that that idea. And so ultimately, when she was at Columbia that last year, she um, not only was on a Columbia Law Review, but also tied to be first in her class. So she performed, obviously, brilliantly, both at Harvard and at, at uh, Columbia. But yes, she wasn't able to get a, a, an interview um, for, a, for any position. And then she often said, I had three strikes against me. I was Jewish, a woman, and a mother of a four-year-old. Were most law firms made up exclusively of white and, and non-Jewish men at that time? I believe, I don't know the number, but there was a quota, um, particularly for Jewish men, Jewish, and that in general, uh, it was a pretty white culture. Okay, and um, the idea of a mo- uh, not only a woman, but also a woman who had a child was a big question. You know, how can she, there was just this, uh, this feeling how uh, women should be at home taking care of the family. And uh, uh, she wasn't able to, um, you know, pop the glass and she wasn't able to even get a, you know, a toe in the door, so to speak. Do you and think I, that I if she had gotten a law... Do you think if she had gotten a law firm job right away, she might have had a very different career? I think she would have a, 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 a very, very different career. In fact, I've read that both she and um, former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor would kind of um, chuckle because had they both not been not been discriminated against because uh, Sandra Day O'Connor also was a, a brilliant student and uh, was, I think her first position was being a secretary. Um, they, they sort of chuckled because they said, we'd probably be retired and maybe playing golf. That seemed to be the trajectory <laughs> to a, uh, do a corporate position. What do you think? I think uh, a delegate Floyd, uh, Jennifer, can pre- yes. reflect on that idea of you know, your, you know, the, the trajectory and opportunities for in the law for women then and now. Jennifer, before you do, let me reintroduce everybody. Uh, first of all, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guests are Frida Lee Mock, the uh, filmmaker behind a, a new film called Ruth Justice Ginsburg in her own words. Also, uh, Lily Ledbetter and Jennifer Carol Foy. Jennifer, you want to uh, answer that question? Absolutely. I think that what happens when uh, people are discriminated against, um, they don't just empathize, they understand, because it's now their lived experience. And even though she was, you know, very small, she packed a powerful punch, and she Mm -hmm. had a lot to say. And so I think one of the great things is, is that when people are pushed to the side, when they are marginalized, when their credentials are questioned and their experiences are dismissed and diminished, it ignites a fire. And we saw that. We saw that in her life choices after she was, you know, not allowed to become a clerk to the Supreme Court, after she wasn't allowed to practice, even though she was a top in her class, even though she was competent and qualified and absolutely amazing. And so she wanted to put an exclamation point on it. And she did that. And luckily, we all benefit from it. Um, because she broke down barriers and blazed trails for us 
um, for us to be able to live in the society that we are in today. But she went into teaching. She went into teaching originally, uh, teaching public interest in civil rights law with a specific focus on gender equality, I'm assuming because of her own experiences. And she got a job at Rutgers Law School, but she was told that she would be paid less than her male colleagues. What reason did they give? Uh, well, sim- uh, sorry, you know, obviously, you know, your husband makes more money than <laughs> makes a good salary, so you don't need, you know, the concept of equal pay, <laughs> which Lily Ledbetter can certainly, you know, ex- express those kinds of uh, experiences. Uh, it was just a, an attitude that in the, what was it, early 60s, when she um, had her finally, uh, you say she took a, a teaching position. Um, well, that was a, kind of the first job she was offered, and she said, I, I better, you don't know what's going to come down, uh, mm. you know, later. So she better take that opportunity because, you know, she, I think if you're in the top of your class, you generally think, you know, traditionally, especially in, in a law school like uh, Harvard, the corporate route is a very, very common route to go. And that was turned down. And uh, she, she, um, her government, public service opportunity came in the 80s, you know, when um, President Carter said, you know, everything looks like me white and male, and, you know, he said, uh, started uh, thinking we should have a more diverse federal judiciary, and that's when opportunity came to appoint women and people of color into the federal judiciary in the the late 70s and and the early 80s. Well, she was already a well-known lawyer at that point, but originally she was teaching. She taught at Rutgers. She taught at Columbia Law School, mentoring female and non-white law students, uh, did she feel that changing the makeup of the legal profession might affect how women and minorities were treated under the law? A, a reason that she wound up uh, getting involved with the uh, American Civil Liberties Union? Well, I think um, if you, uh, she, in becoming a judge and justice particularly, you know, really obviously looked to the U.S. Constitution and, uh, as a, her job to interpret. And I think deeply she believed in the concept in the preamble that um, uh, we, um, you know, we, we want to create a more perfect union and the whole concept of equality under the law, that began to really deeply animate her, her work. But before that time, I think personally she had obviously experienced discrimination as a woman and, and as a Jew in terms of seeing that kind of discrimination. Uh, but her activism, I feel, was ignited by the, uh, what was going on in, her, in her, her classes in the late 60s and 70s and in the movement, the women's movement during the 70s. So in and, 1972, uh, that, she, co- she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the American exactly. Civil Liberties and Union. She had the opportunity as a, to, to volunteer. She was mm-hmm. asked to to. You know, to uh, to work at the ACLU, ACLU in New Jersey first as a volunteer, and then uh, ultimately um, she was asked, well, she co-founded the Women's Rights Project to, to really develop strategy on upturning all the discriminatory laws. And she uh, started uh, trying some pretty important cases. She tried a few cases before the Supreme Court. Was Reed versus Reed the fir- her first case before the court? Uh, yes. Well, in fact, as the... Um, Strategist on, on, in the 
Women's Rights Project. Um, she basically led the development of lawsuits covering close to 300 or more, you know, throughout the village and wow. um, main main ACLU, and but also or, argued six cases before the Supreme Court and won five. Uh, at the same time, she actually worked on about 34 Supreme Court cases. So um, she was very much involved in, in really being the architect and the strategist on, on how to, to really win those cases. In Reed versus Reed, the court ruled for the first time that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment applied to sex discrimination, which um, uh, led it to be considered a, a landmark decision. And then... Um, uh, uh but some of her cases, like Weinberger versus Weisenfeld, involved discrimination against men. Yes. Well, it was her feeling that the laws actually restricted both men and women in terms of what uh, their roles could be in society. You know, it was very, very um, re restrictive. And, and that um, the idea was to, uh, to eliminate all those sex sex discrimination rules and laws so that you could, uh, you know, if you wanted to be um, a nurse or stay at home, take care of your children, why not? You know, in other words, the, you should be allowed to seek whatever your destiny can be and not be restricted by laws that discriminate. So, yes, when there were plaintiffs were men, it certainly made that point more clearly. And several times she had um, uh, a man as plaintiffs, but certainly... Um, the Weinberger case is really a, a, a brilliant way to make that point with the nine uh, Supreme Court justices that this man wanted to stay home and take care of his uh, our baby uh, because mm -hmm. the mother had uh, died at uh, childbirth. And, and the case was won. So, so uh, she uh, obviously got... Uh, Got men. Uh, she she wondered, I'm sure, whether men would be more likely to agree with her if they realized that gender equality could also benefit them. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. So you say she won most of her cases before the, the the court, and then in 1980, President Carter appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Um, how long did she serve there? Uh, until she served uh, until 90 until until she was appointed. Well, with 13 years, and in, 19, in 1993, President Clinton appointed her to the U.S. Supreme Court. And you showed and her. That, go ahead. No, by that time, uh, um, she had developed the, this, this. This she had created an, an uh, impressive body of work in terms of um, laws upturning sex, sex discrimination, and uh, I think that was very persuasive. To President Clinton in terms of deciding um, to appoint her as a, as the Supreme Court Justice because she was not on the short list. Um, it, it, um, as you know from the story, her husband is very much the the, the 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 man behind the woman, so to speak. <laughs> he was yeah. a booster and um, operated almost like a, a campaign manager to make sure her name was her name was very much known. The, the, the team of the president. In the film, we see her Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearing 
And the chair was Joe Biden. She was asked for her views on abortion. How did she answer those questions? Um, she, uh, it's called the Ginsburg rule. She said any, uh, the case may be coming before the courts, then it would be injudicious hmm. to answer that question. And um, since that time, uh, other nominees have used that answer. Amy Coney Barrett. One does. One doesn't. Uh, yes, probably so because uh, you don't want to prejudge until one hears the cases. Yeah. Um, she was only the, yeah. the second woman appointed to the court. The first Jewish woman. Was she seen as one of the more liberal justices when she was first appointed? Um, I because she was appointed by a Democrat. She was perceived as. Mm. Um, more than a conservative court, a justice, but on her experience, her work on the on the appellate level, uh, she was perceived as a, very much uh, um, a consensus uh, a jurist, and uh, neither uh, neither on either either side much. So um, maybe we should ask. Oh, Jennifer Foy, those legal questions. Yeah. Okay. What do you think? <laughs> um, yeah, I would have to say that I do believe that she was perceived to be, um, you know, one of the more progressive um, uh, justices on the bench. Um, oftentimes, people will be able to anticipate, you know, how the split would go. Um, but when there was a question about uh, fairness or equity, uh, racial justice issues, women issues, you, prob you pretty much knew um, where uh, former Justice uh, Ginsburg was going to land. And so she was very consistent. Um, she was very articulate in her reasoning. Um, she would call on the law. She would call on equity, um, the balance of equities. And uh, that was renowned. And she was completely principled and wasn't going to be moved by, um, you know, social uh, norms or what was popular at the time. Um, it was all about principle, and that was really noteworthy. Do you think that uh, her being a woman uh, played a role in all of that? Because, uh, for example, liberal women tend to be criticized a bit more. Just look at what happens to AOC. Um, I think that whenever you are an agitator, you're criticized, um, you know, and the words... Male or female. That male, male or female. Power never conceives easily. So you have to agitate, agitate. And she was definitely an agitator. She was there to up in the system to change uh, the status quo and end politics as usual when you're talking about, you know, the usual business of, of women, relegating us to second-class citizens, um, paying us inequitably. Um, relegating us to these, you know, constructed social norms that uh, prohibited us from reaching the upper echelons of uh, education, our careers, um, and and that's it. And so that's where that's where she was. So I think that is attributed to anyone. I think women bear the brunt of it, though, because again, we're fighting against these um, stereotypes that we should be soft-spoken and demure and seen and not heard, and we are quickly putting that to rest, and uh, former Justice Ginsburg let, definitely let that charge. I'm going to take a little break now. Okay, go ahead. 
you know, I would say it's most important is to understand that she really looked at the U.S. Constitution and interpreted it by the law. It wasn't necessarily being an activist or uh, I would say that rather than put labels on, on, on one's activity is that she, she interpreted those concepts, you know, uh, in order to um, create a more perfect union and the idea of equal protection under the law. She felt that this included all those and those stories, those cases came up. Um, she interpreted them within um, the, the rights of women or rights of equity issues of payment. All these were interpreted within the guidelines of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and we and will look for, into, further into that. After we take a little break, we'll be talking uh, with uh, Jennifer about the case she was involved with uh, when she was a, a cadet at the Virginia Military Academy. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Listening to uh, a little bit from an opera called Scalia Ginsburg, an opera by Derek Wang, and uh, that was a singer in in the role of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But uh, the topic today is a film called Ruth Justice Ginsburg in her own words, which premieres today on virtual cinemas and then will be available on uh, TV on demand on March 9th. My guests are the film's director. Frida Lee Mock, uh, Lily Ledbetter, who um, played an important role in in uh, our memory of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Jennifer Carroll Foy, who was uh, involved in one of the um, really important decisions. Uh, Jennifer, in the film, we see you as a cadet at the Virginia Military Academy. Can you tell us about U.S. versus Virginia, the case that gained women the right to enter VMI? Absolutely. And so um, I was, I remember being in my high school JRTC class when we were watching the Supreme Court or about the Supreme Court um, Virginia Military Institute decision on TV. And VMI had uh, refused to admit women. It was an all-male college. And they used uh, different um, types of defenses to say pretty much everything that women cannot withstand the academic rigor and the military training that VMI had to offer. It will undermine uh, it as an institute of higher learning um, and that an all-male institute had a place, even though it was receiving um, public funding. Um, and so I remember just vividly hearing the men in my class say things like, well, women are born inferior. We have a place. We need to stay in it. Um, and uh, we just shouldn't be admitted. But I remember hearing the voice and listening to the words of uh, Justice Ginsburg when she said basically in so many words an opinion that women can do all things if given the opportunity and separate is not equal. And so because VMI had attempted to establish uh, what they call an equivalency of a women's military college um, at another school. However, as Ginsburg rightly pointed out, um, we need to take benefit in part in the legacy and the networking and all of the things that VMI had to offer that could not be replicated at another institute of higher learning. Um, and so, was, go ahead. 
No, finish your, your point. Oh, oh, and so with that, um, you know, I made the decision after hearing her words that I was going to attend VMI, um, mm-hmm. and then I uh, applied. And I will never forget uh, one of my friends. He was going to go to West Point, and he walked up to me and he said, "You know what? I was going to go to West Point, but I'm going to go with you when you go to VMI because I want to be there to watch you when you fail." Oh, boy, that's not, that was a real friend. <laughs> he was, yes, because even though we're friends, don't forget I'm still female, and therefore to him and many other people, inferior. And so I looked at him and I said, challenge accepted. And so I went to VMI, so did he and another male in our class. And when they got their head shaved bald, so did I. And when they gave them a man's uniform, they gave me a man's uniform. VMI changed none of their standards for women. And after years of marching, sweating, and bleeding beside over a 1,000 male cadets, out of the other two men who went with me to VMI, I am the only one of us to walk across that Virginia Military Institute stage. And it's because of Justice Ginsburg. (laughs) Was that the first case of gender discrimination that Justice Ginsburg heard as a Supreme Court justice? I am... You don't know. I'm not sure that it was the the, the first... um, Mm -hmm. But I know that um, in that policy, she held that uh, VMI Institute uh, refusing to admit women was definitely unconstitutional. So I know that in that way it set precedence and that um, it, it also uh, persuaded uh, pretty much um, the same idea that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause uh, of sex, sex discrimination applies in, in this case also. And she wrote the majority yeah. opinion. Yeah, and what was case. important? Yeah. About, yeah, and what was important that actually, um, just Chief Justice Rehnquist appointed her to write the opinion. Hmm. I, I believe, out of respect for the work that she had done in the seventies, and to the, that th- this was really an extension, a fulfillment of the of the you know, the issues that she had litigated in the seventies uh, on behalf of um, sex, upturning sex discrimination. And, um, and it was a, um, a seven-to-one you know, majority opinion in her, mm-hmm. her opinion, which are legendarily memorable for their brilliance and succinctness that you can almost, as Jennifer did, almost um, verbatim, you know, tell, repeat what she said. Who is the dissenter? Um, it was Julia. her best, one of her best friends. <laughs> we'll get to Alita later. <laughs> we'll get to Alita later. Um, yes. That is interesting. We uh, already uh, talked a bit about Lily Ledbetter's case, but Lily, let's uh, go into it a bit more detail. Your case was Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. How long had you been working for Goodyear before you learned that men doing the same job were being paid more than you were? Nineteen years. Nineteen wow. years. And then I would not have learned except someone anonymously gave me a note with my name and three men and had our base salary. Uh, we were in management. We were not. It was a unionized plant, but we were not in the union because we were managers. Uh, and we also got time and hive, depending on how many hours. And I worked a lot of overtime. And when I first saw the note, I knew it was correct, and I was just devastated. But it it caused a lot of um, 
decisions to be made because I first thought about all that overtime and how shortchanged I had been all my life in, in my earnings. And then the other thing I started thinking about was this is my retirement. It's based on this, my contributory retirement, my 401K, and someday my Social Security all depends on what I've earned. So it was very, very critical and very important. And you but, sued claiming pay discrimination under the Title Seven of the uh, well, Civil the Rights Act of 1964, the, the Equal the Pay, pay Act. And the lower federal court moved it into the together, and that's how the Supreme Court was able to find that little T90 technicality that they could rule against my case. Because the laws would have obviously indicated that you should have won. What reason did they give? Yeah. Well, it was something about the lower federal court moving the equal pay case in. There were three other lawsuits. I had four lawsuits. I also had filed a charge based on age discrimination. I lost that one. That's the one that I really wanted to win, <laughs> uh, more so than the uh, equal pay, as far as I was concerned. Of course, equal pay was very important. But the other thing was the other two was just sort of frivolous lawsuits, and we gave those up. And my lawyer said we needed something to kind of give in a little bit. So those were given up, but the lower federal judge put those cases over in the title, under Title VII. He want, his, his thinking and ruling was based on we can just put these all together, and therefore it'll be cheaper on the courts to process. And that's how it came about, because we originally it was an equal pay, which should have stayed that way. But the lower federal court, uh, seven people on the jury, awarded me $3.8 million initially. But then, of course, the Supreme Court made that ruling, and I never, never got a dime of money from any source, never, not one penny. But what I did when Justice Ginsburg read that dissent, and she challenged Congress to take it up and change the law, and actually all across the United States, the outcry about this verdict was unbelievable. It was coming in from every state, every facility, every group. It didn't matter. Everybody was hollering about it. So we had a lot of support. But they started flying me to Washington about three times a month, and I would walk the halls of Congress, have appointments to meet with the representatives of House members and then the Senate. And I also ended up testifying twice in the House before committees and then testified twice in the Senate. And then um, it was just a lot of work. A lot of people wrote letters and campaigned, and there was rallies. And I went from state to state getting support. But we had both Democrat and Republican support, and it was voted into law that way. But it took a lot of work. A lot of work. It wasn't really a slam dunk, but people got it. They understood it. They talked about their wives, their daughters, and their mothers. But a lot of young men in Congress, tears would run out of their eyes when I'd share my story because they talk about their mother working two jobs to send them to law school mm. and how hard it was and how little they had simply because she wasn't paid what she should have been paid. 
And this has been going on for a lot of years. An equal pay law was passed in 1963. But to have a law is good, but you have to enforce it. It has to be enforced and overseen. And I went to work for Goodyear in 1979, and they told me as I went to work, if I discussed my pay, I would not have a job. So Mm. no one ever discussed their salaries or their pay or when they got a raise. I had no way to find out. I tried to because I knew I was approaching retirement, but yet I couldn't until I got that anonymous note. I had the opportunity to meet Justice Ginsburg in November of 2010 in her office. She had just moved in, the big corner office, and she shared with me a lot of the stories when she started to apply for work as a lawyer out of law school. She couldn't even get the interview, and if she did finally get a job, they would always tell her they would pay her less because she had a husband or And that was why. And she said, this is not right, this is not the law, and this is not the way it is. And in her office that day, she pointed to the bill, the Lilly Ledbetter bill, that was signed by President Obama and and was framed so beautifully. The President Obama had took the time to carry that to her for (laughs) her office because of her dissent, because her dissent was what started the ball rolling and people still talk about it today. This case is in every college across the nation, I think, in the HR classes, it's in the law classes, and um, it's just a really a, a big deal because my case was not just Lily Ledbetter. It touched every American family across this nation. And what happened to your career after the case? I mean, well, after the uh, law? Like I said, I lost the age discrimination, and Goodyear kept putting the um, uh, pressure on, um, and I knew that I was, uh, so I finally took a buyout in uh, November of uh, 1998. Um, It was about the time we filed a lawsuit, because I filed my charge in March or February of 1998. Oh, I see, 1998, and uh, I filed it with the EEOC, and then when they called and said that they recommended I get my own attorney, I probably could get to federal court quicker. That's what I did, and then we filed the charge, the lawsuit in the case in November of 98, and then we went to trial in 2003, federal court in my home county, and the verdict came out at the end of the week and um but it's uh it's it's been a it's been a journey and it's been a long and these cases are extremely hard and this was something justice ginsburg understood these are hard on them families that stand up to fight cases like this because during all those years of fighting it actually took nine years from the time i filed the charge till i got the final verdict and then there was two more years that I lobbied and campaigned for the Ledbetter bill, and I never got one penny, not one penny. And you, uh, and you, say, you joke in the film that you have never bought a Goodyear tires since. Um, I don't this buy is... Goodyear tires, no. No, 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 no I do not. You're <laughs> listening to... I, I have to take... 
I have to do a station ID. <laughs> this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. And my guests are uh, Frida Lee Mock, who has made a new film called Ruth Justice Ginsburg in Her Own Words, uh, Lily Ledbetter, who we were just talking with, and Jennifer Carol Foy, who is running for governor of Virginia. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of time, but I want to get to a couple of other things. Uh, in the film, Frida, uh, we also look at the rela- her relationship with other Supreme Court justices. She was only the second woman appointed to the Supreme Court after Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, did they usually agree on cases? Um, did they agree? Um, you know, I don't know the specific cases, I th- but they basically were on uh, opposite sides, uh, sides of the, you know, O'Connor was a, was more yeah. was more conservative. When she retired, Ruth became the only woman on the court. But by the end of her life, she was one of three. Uh, did she talk about wanting to see more women on the court? Well, she says, "Why not have nine women on the court? Uh-huh. Had nine yeah, that's right. For all those years, and and why not? And that's true. Why not? You know. And of course, she felt uh, that you, you just hope that that whoever's in power, so to speak, of making decisions reflects, you know, who we are out there. And I think women would do make a difference. She said certainly would have made a difference, she felt, on the Lily Ledbetter case. Oh, yeah. Had it been more women, it, it would absolutely have made a difference. And Jennifer, um, you, terms, yeah. It sounds like I, Jennifer wants to add something. Uh, oh, no, that was me. I think no. that was Lily. Yeah. But I agree. I totally agree. But I would like to just, as uh, an aside from what Lily uh, uh, talked about, is that, that Lily is inspiring to the extent that she reflects what Justice Ginsburg always wanted to remind her clerks or remind the public that people who are plaintiffs, who you know, say this is wrong and somehow make, it, make uh, their story and their case to the Supreme Court, are really ordinary Americans, you know, uh, but extraordinary in their determination to see what uh, see right from wrong, so to speak, and that if you look at Lily's case, you know who's a hardworking uh, person, and, and Sally Reed in the first case, Reed versus Reed, she was pretty much bring, you know working at home uh, doing domestic work, but she too felt it was wrong in her case when her teenage son um, committed suicide, and that she wanted to at least have a part in supervising the estate. Uh, the law in um, Idaho is that uh, if there's a difference between a man and a woman, that it, the, the law favors the man. And she felt this was wrong. And so yeah. she somehow got, you know, grouped uh, uh, an attorney who would plead her case. And, uh, yeah, she had a unanimous decision. And, and you're right when you point out that this was the first time um, a sex discrimination case was uh, overturned on the basis of the 14th Amendment. Before that time, the 14th Amendment was used to um, deny, to overturn race discrimination. And um, this is, so that this was a, a, an important victory, which then you saw what happened in the VMI case, and you certainly see what was attempted in, in, in Lily Ledbetter's. Uh, now, we have uh, just a few minutes left, and there are two important things that I want to address, so I guess we're going to have to rush through them. One of the most discussed aspects of her time in the court was her friendship with Justice Antonine Scalia, although they were usually on the opposite sides of 
of cases. And the other uh, thing was uh, she was criticized for not retiring while President Obama was still in office so he could appoint her successor. Um, so let's talk about both of those things. Were they really good friends or was that just PR? How, how did she explain how they could be friends despite being so diametrically opposed on pretty much everything? Well, I, I think it was, it was their their friendship was from everything I've read and what I see and the, the, the repertoire you see between them. They're, they're deep friends. They're, they're good family friends. And, you know, they they um, they spent a New Year's together. Um, they enjoyed each other's company, as you can see. They um, went to the opera together and participated in the opera. And I mean, those are very real, real um, friendships. So, but it, you know, she and deeply enjoyed him, and as she says, she misses him, you know, in terms of what's changed in the courts. Um, so that, that just, it's, uh, says a lot about how we diametrically uh, oppose positions can find common ground um, in a shared I humanity. would find it difficult. Yeah. Uh, well, so, uh, I, <laughs> let's get to the other thing. Uh, was she thinking that if Hillary Clinton was elected, she'd be more likely to appoint a woman to succeed her? I actually have not read any material about the appointment if Hillary had become president. If there would be a, a female appointment, but it w I would think it would be likely uh, in the same way that her appoint or her successor is a female. Um, so, um, and also it was uh, well known that she was going to step down thinking that um, Hillary Clinton would become president. And so she didn't step down. Hmm. And then and Donald Trump was elected, and she knew that the Republicans would block any Obama nominee. Um, we can only conjecture, but how do you think Justice Ginsburg would have felt about Amy Coney Barrett being appointed to the court? Um, Jennifer, do you want to answer that? <laughs> sure, I'll take it. Um, I, th I think that, you know, we um, are going to see the ramifications of this decision for a very long time. I think that it's pretty clear on, you know, where uh, Supreme Court Justice um, Amy Coney Barrett stands on a lot of issues. And when you're talking about women's access to reproductive health care and abortion, when you're talking about um, some of our wins, when you you know, as far as being, becoming a more equitable uh, country, um, as far as equality goes with women and race and all of these things, I think it's a step back. And I think that it would, um, she would shrink at the idea that this is the direction that we're going because it's now an, a predominant conservative um, bench. And at any moment, all of the great progressive gains that we've made in making a more equitable, fair and just society can be undone um, with, a, a, with a vote, right? And so I think that we have to continue to push and lean in and advocate and help change laws um, so our lives aren't dependent upon this conservative bench that can undo all the great work that she has spearheaded all of these years. The great Amy Coney Barrett would this. probably have uh, gotten along with Justice Alito as well, but for very different reasons. Well, one more thing. She talks about uh, being amused that she was given the nickname inspired by a fellow Brooklynite, the notorious 
uh, RBG. Yes. Oh, you mean that? She was amused by, by that. Yeah, B-I-G. No, well, yeah, well, in her yes. case, R-B-G. Yes. Uh, so she I guess... An, yeah. mm-hmm. Go ahead. She became an icon, right? The same yeah. way and, and, that um, he was thought to change the music industry. She changed, uh, you know, equality here in this country. And so um, she became a, a, a social icon. You saw the T-shirts. You saw the photos. I mean, it was just amazing. I think she was highly amused um, by it, but it was well-deserved. I mean, she became the great dissenter, um, and her opinions are are now quotes that people use and, mm. you know, and epithets that they say to themselves, that we can do all things if given the opportunity. So her and we have to leave it there, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, the, the film is Ruth Justice Ginsburg on her own words. In her own words, it premieres today in virtual cinemas and on TV on demand on March 9th. And my great thanks to my guests, Frida Lee Mock, Lily Ledbetter, and Jennifer Carol Foy. Thank you, and that bring- Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn for preparing today's interview and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast in iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If there's anything you'd like to tell me about a show or make a suggestion, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. If you like what we do on Leonard Lopate at Large or on any of the other great shows on WBAI, we need your help to keep it all going. So I hope you'll step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to keep the kind of unique, in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. But please be sure to make the contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Big thanks to everyone who is helping to keep us on the air with their generosity. And we hope that you'll join us again on Monday when historian Brenda Wineapple will make a return visit to our show for an examination of the parallels between the impeachments of Andrew Johnson and Donald Trump. Have a great weekend.